15. Okay, 2 Samuel 6, 1 through 15. If you have the blue Bibles that are underneath your chair, uh, it's page 147 there. If you don't own a Bible, that is a free gift. Please take that home. 2 Samuel chapter 6, 1 through 15. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Bael, Judah, to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new car and brought it out at the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel were celebrating before the Lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and castanets and cymbals. And when they came up to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah. And God struck him down there because of his error, and he died there beside the ark of, the, of God. And David was angry because of the Lord and broken out against Uzzah. And that place is called Perez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom to the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with the rejoicing. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and fattened animal. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Nice work, Anthony. Thank you very much. Uh, so I get to preach that passage and then some a little into chapter 7. So my name is Josh. I'm the pastor here. And today we are talking about worship. So worship often gets relegated to just a church word, but worship is a human word. Every human born is a worshiper. There's something inside of us that needs more. We want to give ourselves to something. I looked up what worship means. It means to show great honor, to give honor, reverence, and your devotion to something. And today we're talking about worship. It's interesting just how God lines up historical moments. It's September 11th. Uh, the Queen of England just passed away. Uh, football season's kicking off. All these things that get our devotion and our passion and our reverence. Some of them rightfully so, but maybe not always in the right order. Jesus is who we worship here. And we get to talk about worship today in the, through this passage, which is pretty intense. We just saw a man be killed on the spot by God because his worship was not right. So we're talking about worship, not who, that's Jesus. But we're going to talk about the why and how of worship. And in this story, we're going to go chapter 6, chapter 7. I see three pictures of why and how we worship. Here's the question we're walking through all morning, just so you know, if you're a note taker. How do we worship God. That's what we get to see here. King David was not put on the throne just so Israel could live a cush life. King David was put on the throne of God so that the people of God would be worshiping what they're supposed to be worshiping and how they're supposed to be worshiping. And that's what we get to walk through 
this morning. So there's going to be three movements we see here. Here's the first one. I just want to give you the headline. is He is holy, so we will worship reverently. God is holy, so we will worship reverently. I want to read together the first four verses that Anthony, our fill-in scripture reader, just did a great job on. But let's just set the stage. David's king. Last week he became king. It's official. Saul's dead. There's one person left that could sort of maybe take the throne. It's David, though. He's ready to lead God's people. And the way he wants to lead them is back into true worship. Verse 1 through 4. Let's read it together. David again gathered all the chosen men of Israel, 30,000. And David rose and went with all the people who were with him, bailed from Baal Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. And they carried the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadad, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahil, the sons of Abinadad, were driving the new cart with the ark of God, and Ahio went before the ark. What is this story about? Partially it's about the Ark of God. I just love how long this title is. The Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits on the throne of cherubim. That is what we're calling this thing. The Ark of God, which is called by the name of the Lord of hosts who sits enthroned on the cherubim. Now, if you don't have a church background and you're walking in here, that's already weird. And I'm going to make it more weird because I'm going to show you where this came from. God said, this isn't an Indiana Jones thing. This is a God thing, the Ark of the covenant. But here's where this comes from. This is out of Exodus. This is Moses who's leading the people of God out. And God wants his presence to be with them, but he knows he's got to mediate his presence in a way that does not destroy them, like we just saw Uzzah be destroyed. So here's, it's kind of long. They shall make an ark of acacia wood. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, a cubit and a half its breadth, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and outside you shall overlay it. And you shall make on it a molding of gold around it. You shall cast four rings of gold for it and put them on its four feet, two rings on the side of it and two rings on the other side of it. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. And you shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony that I shall give you, his word. You shall make a mercy seat of pure gold. Two cubits and a half shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its breadth. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them on the two ends of the mercy seat. Make one cherub on the one end and one cherub on the other end. Of one piece with the mercy seat shall, you shall make the cherubim on its two ends. The cherubim shall spread out their wings above, overshadowing the mercy seat with their wings. Their faces one to another. Toward the mercy seat you shall, shall the faces of the cherubim be. Here's the main point. And, sh and you shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I shall give you. There is where I will meet with you. And from above the mercy seat, from between the two cherubim that are on the ark of the testimony, I will speak with you about all that I will give you in commandment for the people of Israel. How is God going to have a relationship with people? That and that alone. Build this thing with all this gold and all these poles and do it exactly like this and have these angels with wings spread out looking at each other. And there in that, one of your people can come in and I will talk with them face to face. And that's how you are going to have a relationship with me. I am holy. I set the agenda. That's what the Ark of the Covenant is. Now, where has it been all this time that Israel has to go get it? Indiana Jones, what's the answer? It's basically, it becomes this, what all religious symbols can become, and it's why we don't have the original 
writings of Scripture like the first ones put down because we would be so this world would be destroyed in World War Z over the original Bible. We don't have the Ark of the Covenant. Why? Because we get goofy. Where is it, though? In this story. The Philistines kept stealing it. And it's a hilarious story you can read back. It's like 1 Samuel 4 and 5. But the Philistines took it and they took it as a good luck charm. Like we use crosses sometimes and all this religious stuff. And they put it in the room with their god, Dagon. And it's a hilarious story. Because they go in every morning and the Ark of the Covenant's there. And Dagon's falling over face first. Picture like a little wooden god. They're like, hey... Don't mess with our God. And they leave, and they come back the next day. and Hey, don't mess with our God. That is the God that controls all things. And they come back, and then finally his arms are chopped off, his head's chopped off, and it's just his rear end sticking up. It's God saying, like, that's who you follow. That's where it's been. The Philistines have had it. And eventually they're like, we don't want it. So they put it out, and Israel took it, and they were all scared of it. So it's kind of been like in storage in the people of Israel. And now David is bringing the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem. Why? Saul was not going to be king. David is going to be king. What's so special about David? At his core, he worships the Lord. And he knows that no place, listen to me, no human heart in this room, no home you go to, no work you're a part of, no system or church or organization you're a part of it. If God is not the center, the worshiping, gravitational center of that place, it's not worth being a part of. A home without Jesus is a home with the biggest void you can have. A human heart without Jesus is the biggest void you can have in the human heart. And David knows that if we're the people of God, what we need as our center is Yahweh. And the way we worship Yahweh, the way he set it up is through the ark of the covenant so he goes and he gets it and he wants to bring it back here and let's just read what happens now go to chapter chapter 6 verse 5 we're going to read down to verse 10 and david and all the house of israel were celebrating before the lord with songs and lyres and harps and tambourines and consonants and cymbals and when they came to the threshing floor of nacon uzzah put his hand to the ark of god and took hold of it For the oxen had stumbled, and the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and God struck him down there because of his heir, and he died there beside the ark of God. And David was angry because the Lord had broken out against Uzzah, and the place is now called Prez Uzzah to this day. And David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David, but David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. Pause right there. What just happened? Here's the picture. They're carrying it on a cart with some oxen. An oxen trips. Uzzah, who's a priest, part of the priestly order, grabs the ark so that it doesn't fall and hit the ground, and God strikes him dead on the spot. And David watches this, and he's mad at God. And everybody's scared to death. That's the God we're bringing into our city to worship. What happened? God is holy. And if you come in the presence of holy, you come in the presence of holiness the way holiness tells you to come in the presence of holiness. I just want to pull out a little verse from what we just read out of Exodus. Here's how you're supposed to carry the Ark of the Covenant. 
You shall put the poles into the rings on the sides of the ark to carry the ark by them. The poles shall remain in the rings of the ark and they shall not be taken from it. The ark shall be carried like this with these wooden, golden overlaid poles and people walking with it. How is the ark being brought in? With a new cart. We're going to worship God. We've got the best cart in town and we're going to pull it on a cart. And it falls. Uzzah reaches out his hand and God kills him on the spot. One commentator says this, Uzzah made the human decision in his mind that the ground was more impure than him. Which is just fascinating. Especially for you germaphobes. Like, <laughs> the grossest thing in this room is the human heart. Not whatever boogers are coming out of whatever kids' noses. God is holy. Now here's what I just frustrates me about being in church, I came to church later in the game, is you get these words that mean a lot. They matter, like holiness and Jesus and glory. But then you get in a church setting and they just get thrown around. They become like junk drawer terms for anything. Like, what does holiness even mean? Most people, it's like some sort of moral purity. Like, your most holy friends are the ones who don't cuss as much as you. They're the holy ones. Here's what holiness across the Old Testament and New Testament means set apart. The best, like, succinct definition I've ever seen is uniquely different. We've been set apart. You are utterly and uniquely different. God is holy, and he will be approached by those who honor that. The best illustration just in creation that we have of holiness is the sun, I think. Like, the sun is utterly unique. It's holy, if you want to track with me. What does that mean? It means without the sun, none of us are alive. It brings light and life and heat and energy and the gravitational force to this. Everything that gives us life comes from the sun. It is utterly unique. But is there a way to approach the sun? Not really. We're about as close as you can get to the sun as a planet and still exist. I didn't do the research, scientists. You can, we can maybe scooch over a little bit more, and we're good. But nobody can go into the presence of the sun. You will burn up. Why? Because it is holy. It is utterly unique. It's life-giving. It brings energy and everything we need, but it also brings death to those who come too close and don't adhere to its holiness. God is holy. He's utterly unique. We need to hear that. Like we live in a culture where what is God? It's whatever you think and you think and you think. And then all of us take the collective thoughts of all of us impure humans on our thoughts of God. And we take those and we sort of by democratic choice weed out. And then this is what my God's like. No, no, no. The Son is what it is. God is who He is. He is holy. He is utterly unique. This should be controversial. This should be offensive. Like, here's what's fascinating. People would say, that's, ah. like, if you're here and you got invited, like, hey, I got this great church. It's really welcoming. Like, come experience the love of God. In the first 10 minutes of the sermon, is God is utterly unique. He will kill you if you don't come to Him in reverence. That's a bit jarring. But I just want to show you, David was angry with the Lord. Which means God's holiness is offensive across cultures and generations. 
like Eastern Muslim practices are offensive to Western Americans. God's holiness is offensive to Americans, Muslims, Asians, people from the Middle Ages. No matter when you approach God, His holiness has always been an offensive thing. Why? Because it is utterly unique. There is nothing like it. So we worship Him in reverence. Jesus says like this, the time is coming when those who worship will worship in spirit and in truth. If I could summarize that, that means the only way you can truly worship the God of the universe is in spirit and truth. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you've been born again, you have given your life to Jesus Christ, and you have an open Bible so you actually know the truth on how you come to him and how he comes to you. That's the only way. Anything without one of those two things, you are not worshiping God. You have worshiped the little Dagon that God can just knock over and pull his pants down whenever he wants. God is holy. He will be approached with holiness. Now, here's what's just great about the Bible is it's a story that you can kind of read and like anticipate what's next. So this is the Ark of the Covenant. It's here. It's already killed one person. David's like, I don't want anything to do with this. Let's put it in this guy's house. What do you expect the very next line to be? It's like the end of a Clint Eastwood movie. Everyone's dead. <laughs> Period. <laughs> Let's just read what happens when the holiness of God now enters this poor man's house. He's like, how did I get stuck with this? Go to verse 10. So David was not willing to take the ark of the Lord into the city of David. But David took it aside to the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. And the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all of his household. And it was told King David, the Lord has blessed the household of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went up and brought the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with rejoicing. That is fascinating. It's just a reminder, like you may be offended by his holiness, but you want it. Because it actually comes into your household, into your heart. What's it do? It blesses. It blessed this man. Like, what's the line from Narnia? Everybody always says, is he safe? Is the lion safe? No, he's not safe. But he's good. Is the holiness of God safe? Absolutely not. But it's good. And it's in this man's house for three months. And all he experiences is the goodness and blessing of God, which is our next movement of worship we've seen. Jesus is good, so we're going to worship him extravagantly. His holiness is not the end of the story. My Muslim friends have a picture of a holy God. They never get to the point where the presence of God is in their house just blessing them. It's always a fearful, like, how do I get in your presence? I'm crossing my fingers. Christians boldly walk into the house because he is good. Let's keep reading together. Verse 12 through 19. Yeah, we already read 12. Let's start at 13. David finds out this guy's getting blessed. No, 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 I want this. Verse 13. And when those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps, he sacrificed an ox and a fattened animal. Stop right there just a second. When those who bore the ark of the Lord had gone six steps. The picture is when those who were carrying the Ark of the Covenant, as they're supposed to, had taken six steps, 
they stopped and broke out into celebration. Two things. God makes you celebrate extravagantly. But the other thing, somebody opened up their Bible and said, let's get a redo on this. The Lord's mercies are new every day. He destroyed Uzzah. But if you open up your Bible and get to know him and worship him in spirit and truth, you can carry his presence if you do it according to the way he wants. That's just fascinating. Like, the Bible is this amazing story that really is hard to grasp sometimes, but this is very clear. Like, they screwed up. Somebody repented. They did it better. Now the blessing of God's presence is walking into city with him. Verse 14. It gets better. And David danced before the Lord with all his might. And he was wearing a linen ephod, which is a priestly garment. So the priestly king is dancing in the presence of the Lord. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting with the sound of the horn. And as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Michael, the daughter of Saul, looked out the window and saw King David leaping and dancing before the Lord. And she despised him in her heart. And they brought in the ark of the Lord and set it in its place inside the tent that David had pitched for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering the burnt offerings and the peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he distributed among all the people the whole multitude of Israel, both men and women, a cake of bread, a portion of meat, a cake of raisins to each one. Then all the people departed, each to his house that is a beautiful picture of worship they are sacrificing animals and goats and doves and all this and then they get into the city and david the king is dancing like when is the last time you danced with all your might it could be you're a terrible dancer it could be the joy in the presence of the lord has not like my kids i won't say ozzy Loves zombies right now, Disney zombies. He'll go in his room, he'll turn on the Disney zombie soundtrack, and he just gets after it. Jesus says, unless you become like a little child, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. Unless you can worship like that, the kingdom of God, you are not worthy for. Now, this is not a, oh, I got to go home and take some dance lessons and Texas swing and all this. Like, no. But if really you know the God of the Bible, who you should be on the wrong side of history with, and he has brought you in by your grace. What else do you do but dance and sacrifice and give extravagantly? There's a parable that says, the kingdom of heaven is like this. It's like a treasure hidden in the field, which a man found, finds his treasure in the field. And in his joy, he goes and sells everything he has to buy that field. Why? Because it's worth it. Why? Because Jesus is worth it. Because he is worth it. What's so worth about it? He is good. He's here to bless. This man had him in his house for three months, the Ark of the Covenant, and all he received was blessing upon blessing upon blessing upon blessing. And how do we respond? We worship extravagantly. Here's just my question just for you to ponder. If you're in RC, you're going to ask these questions this week. But like, how do you worship extravagantly? Like part of Good parenting is taking kids from the kids' years where they're just blissfully unaware and joyful through the adolescent years where they start to like live in a wall of mirrors and get them out of that phase totally 100% comfortable in their skin to the best of our ability. 
worship is like that in a church service. Part of discipleship is taking wherever you're at and wherever your journey is, however comfortable you are with Jesus and his goodness to you, and then expressing that. I'm not just talking about worship, but your life reflecting what's going on inside with you and Jesus and getting you to the point where you can dance like the king of a country in front of everyone in a linen ephod while everyone's watching and his wife is furious. Get in here, David. You look like an idiot. How do you worship extravagantly? With your time. With your talents, which is another way to say your giftings. Your treasures, which is a way to say your money. Like, I don't meet Christians who don't give without... I, I don't think I've met a Christian whose giving is not part of their worship act where I'm like, that's the faith I want to emulate. And that's like, I don't see what you all give. Like that's part of, it's between you and the Lord. But if you're not giving regularly, consistently, generously to what the Lord is doing because of what the Lord has done for you, like you're not even close to dancing in the streets like a crazy person. But maybe what you're going to do to move the ball down the field is I'm going to decide in my heart, which is Corinthians tells you, to give. Each must decide according to their own heart their own time frame, to start to give. Why? Because he's so good. He deserves it. He deserves all of it. He's the treasure in the field that none of us deserve. Here's the other question. On Sunday mornings, this room here, how do you worship? Like, is what's going on in here accurately represented with what's going on here in the worship time? You'd be like, well, I'm kind of chill, and yeah, I get it. Everybody's chill. It's a stupid word. It means nothing anymore. <laughs> but part of worshiping the Lord is giving everything. What we saw David do was give him all of his emotions, all of his dance. Everything he had in the tank, he gave to the Lord. Now, I don't want flags getting brought out in this. Or, like, keep it in your purse. <laughs> However, some of us... If you get any conviction from the sermon, it's like, my outward does not even closely reflect how I feel about him inside. And you've got to worship within the personality God's given you. I'm pretty introverted, but I can do this, and I can do this, and I can do this, and I can do this. <laughs> how does David's wife respond, verse 20, to his extravagance? the same way people are going to respond to us in our extravagance. And David returned to bless his household, but Michael, the daughter of Saul, came out to meet David and said, How the king of Israel honored himself today, uncovering himself today before the eyes of his servants, female servants, as if one of the vulgar fellows shamelessly uncovers himself. She's not happy. What do we like make of this? I would just say, true faith in Christ divides people on what our most devoted thing in our heart is and then as we express that devotion in worship whether it's in a Sunday service or with how we spend our money or our time it's going to continue to divide and we're going to have Michaels around us being you are absurd in this economy you are still giving 20 percent to that stupid little bible study down the road stupid no it's extravagance for his Goodness, I love David's response. Oh, this is, can't wait to meet him one day. Verse 22. 
Michael, you think that's bad. I will make myself yet even more contemptible than this, and I will be abased in your eyes. You think you've seen something embarrassing? Just hang out a little bit longer. It's going to get worse, meaning there's no stopping. There's no ceiling to how I'm going to respond to God's goodness in my life. I will dance till you are so embarrassed you leave this place. And then what happens here? This is just fascinating how God does what he does. But by the female servants of whom you've spoken, by them I should be held in honor. There'll be people who see what I'm doing. And not that I'm doing it for people, but they will say, I agree with every dance move coming out of you. I feel the same way. Verse 23, what does God do to Michael, the daughter of Saul? And Michael, the daughter of Saul, had no child to the day of her death. Again, Uzzah's dead. Michael's womb is shut. He's holy, and he will do it how he wants. Here's why Michael's womb was shut, most people think. She was the last possible line of Saul that could continue on and add a king back onto the throne in the ways of Saul. And she watches the king that God has chosen dance before him, and she's offended, and God shuts her womb as a way to say, Saul's house is done. The line of David will continue on forever, but this one is over. We worship him extravagantly because he is so good. Like, let it go. He's so good. His goodness can't be... Our extravagance can't keep up with his goodness. There's no amount of, like, giving back to him that he can't dump twofold, threefold, tenfold, a hundredfold back on us. We worship him extravagantly. And then finally, this final movement in chapter 7. God is faithful, so we're going to worship him Confident. I love this little section here. Go chapter 7, verse 1 through 3. Because it's a sweet little picture of the Christian church, I think, in this day and age. Now, when the king lived in his house, this is David. So now the party's over. Michael's seething somewhere else. He lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all his surrounding enemies. So it's like a little further down the road. The king said to Nathan the prophet. Pause right there. Where'd this guy come from? It's like, Saul, David, Michael, all these. And then the king's having these thoughts, and there's this guy who shows up on the scene. We just call him Nathan the prophet. And he's about to drop some of the most beautiful language in the entire Bible. And I think it's just a sweet picture of what faithful Christianity should look like. Most of us are not Davids. None of us are going to get that much fanfare. Hopefully we're not Saul's. We want to be like the Nathans of the bunch. Like stuff happens. Oh, and then there was this... Aubrey there, and she listened to me, and she prayed for me, and then Aubrey wasn't there. And there was this guy I sat next to in the cubicle. He was the weirdest guy. He never spoke ill of his wife, and then he was gone. That's Christian faith. Nathan, the prophet here, Nathan, the prophet gone, while all these huge characters are doing these crazy, glorious, and mighty, and destructive things, Nathan, the prophet, shows up. And he gets to speak some truth into the situation. Anyways, just to say, it's not the point of the sermon, but I think it's a pretty picture of what God does with us. So, and the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. What's happening here? So David, the party subsides. Israel's life is functioning. The Ark of the Covenant is somewhere right now. David's living in a mansion. The Ark of the Covenant is covered by a canopy like you'd use at a youth football game. 
David's like, I think I want to build a house for my Lord. And Nathan's like, you should. That sounds amazing. Like, just to show you how this next section works, I want to summarize what David, what's the essence of what David is saying here? I want to be faithful, and I want to build a house for God. The word for house there is temple. So David, as the ultimate sign of his fully realized worship, he says, and I want to build a house, a temple for my God. I want to be faithful. I want to spend my life well. I want to build this temple for God. And Nathan says, go and do it. And then the next scene, starting in verse 4, let's see there. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. So God has a different plan. David's plan was not bad. It was insufficient. And it was what most people try to do for God is somehow be impressive enough, faithful enough, good enough so that we can present something back to God and get the eternal thumbs up. Whether it means I'm going to heaven one day or the guilt, fear, and shame of the decisions I've made in my life can be washed away. Well, look at, I know I did that to my first family, but look at how I've treated my second family. And we're just hoping for this. David's like, I want to build him a house. Because David's going to do some awful things as we read here. He's weighing out, here's what I want to do for God. But we read here, but that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, and he's about to preach. A few commentators say this about this. This is the, what we're about to read here is the center focus of the entire Old Testament. Another guy says, this is the most crucial statement about God in the entire Bible. This is the longest recorded speech from God since the days of Moses. David, I want to build you a temple. God says, can I have the mic for a second? And God's talking to Nathan, and he's about to preach. He's going to preach the gospel before anybody was using that word. So what does God have to tell Nathan that he wants to get back to his servant, David? Verse 5. Go and tell my servant, David, thus says the Lord... Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all the places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Meaning he was silent there, and now he's talking to you. Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Verse 8. Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant, David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name like the name of the great ones on the earth. And I will point a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name. And I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. And when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. In your house, 
and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan then went and spoke to David. What just happened? If you're like a Bible nerdish like me, what this is is called the Davidic covenant. It's the promise to David that your throne will last forever. It's utterly important in the story of the Bible. But if we're just reading at face value, it's God just dropping some bombs of what he's going to do. David's like, I want to build you a house. And God says, oh, yeah, boom. I just want to walk through everything God says in this little passage. I will make your name great. David's like, I want to build you something. I got some ideas. I got some blueprints. I will make your name great. I will appoint a place for my people, and I will protect it. Talking about Israel and then the church. I will give you rest. I will raise up one of your offspring. Who is he talking about there? Solomon or Jesus? Yes. That's the answer in prophecy. Is he talking about the immediate? Solomon is going to be a son who's going to fulfill a lot of this. Or is he talking about Jesus, the ultimate son who fulfills? Yes. It's just beautiful how God speaks the future into existence through his prophecy. I will establish his kingdom. Next one. I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be my son. I will discipline him with the rod, but my steadfast love, that word is grace, will never leave him. Who is he? Who's going to get punished? Solomon. But also Jesus. But not because of his iniquity. Because of the iniquity of us, he's laid on him. And he will get punished. And I will make you, David, a house. David says, I want to make my God a temple. And God says, no, I'm going to make you house it's the most important theological statement in the entire old testament what's the summary statement here's how i'd summarize it what is god saying what is the essence of what he's saying god says no i know you think you're faithful and you'll follow through on this but i'm faithful and i'm going to make you a house david and the word for house now is no longer temple but dynasty in the original hebrew what a beautiful picture of what religion is gosh i want to do good i live some poor decisions, but I'm going to do better this time, and I'm going to build God this. And God steps in and says, can you just shush for a second? I'm the faithful one. I will complete all my promises, and your life will turn out successful because of me, period. Why? Because I will never take my grace from you. One of the passages in the New Testament says this, even if we are faithless, he remains faithful because he cannot deny himself. And David is coming face to face with that reality. Like no matter at him at his best is not good enough because what he needs is God's faithfulness. How is this promise going? Smashingly. Your line will have a kingdom forever. Solomon, eh, Solomon's kingdom splits. All these boneheads take over. It's like, oh, what is going to happen? We serve this God who said this kingdom was going to last forever. And then one day a boy arrives in Bethlehem, and they call him the son of David. And he lives with his people. And he goes to a cross because his own people rejected him. And the Romans executed him on a cross. This one man says, once he takes his last breath, surely that man was the king. Which king? The king that God just preached about in this passage here. How does David respond? Now, David doesn't have any of that Jesus stuff yet. But how does he respond to God's goodness and faithfulness? Let's read his little prayer, and we'll wrap, here, wrap up here. Verse 18 to 22. 
Then King David went in and sat before the Lord. Just, that's a good picture. All this is happening. God's preaching the gospel. Here's my goodness. Here's my faithfulness. Sometimes we just need to shush and go and sit before the Lord and try to digest what I just experienced. And what's he doing there? I love this. His first thing out of his mouth is, Who am I, O Lord God? And what is my house that you brought me this far? Who am I? Verse 19. And yet this was a small thing in your eyes, O Lord. You have spoken also of your servant's house for a great while to come. And this is the instruction for mankind, O Lord God. And what more can David say to you? Who am I? What else can I say? For you know your servant, O Lord God, and because of your promise and according to your own heart, you have brought about all this greatness to make your servant know it. Therefore, you are great, O Lord. There is none like you, and there is no God besides you, according to all that we have heard with our ears. That is beautiful. I'm going to build you something. Uh Chill out. I'm going to make you something because I'm faithful. There's a passage in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians says this, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. Paul is telling the church who's seen the resurrected Jesus, you still only worship now in part. It's like you've got this beautiful thing on the other side of the window, and the window is foggy. How much more was the window foggy for David? He had been on the throne a year. He didn't know Jesus, and he's worshiping, saying, Who am I? And what is my family, and what could I ever say back to you? How much more do we as the church who have Jesus Christ, whose faithfulness is what matters most in our life, whatever you come in here with, whatever nonsense you're dealing with, whatever sinful choices, evil choices, destructive decisions, he is faithful. Even if we are faithless, he cannot deny himself. Why? Because he spoke it into existence in 2 Samuel chapter 7, and he hitched himself to his people. And he says, I'm going to be the faithful one. God is faithful, amen? God is good, amen? Amen. And God is holy, amen? And we say this, this is what response time is. Who am I? What is my family? What could I ever give back to you? We can give back a little bit in this little bit of dimly seen beauty we get to experience now and that's what we do now let's pray together god thank you for your gospel thank you for your gospel that is much bigger than our lives much bigger than the life in the existence of the places we live the country we love the family trees we're a part of God, this gospel promise is a faithful and good promise that was made before eternity. You, in your triune perfection, planned out that it was going to be your holiness and your goodness and your faithfulness that would be the centerpiece of human history. So God, we simply respond now to the fact that you have come towards us and you did not destroy us in your holiness but you covered us in your goodness and now you protect us and you let us stand on ground that is your faithfulness and not our faithlessness. So God, be with us as we respond here. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.